Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Lucy Maddox. She is the author of the new book, Blueprint, How Our Childhood Makes Us Who We Are. Lucy is a clinical psychologist, a lecturer, and a writer. She's written for everything from The Guardian, Science Prospect, The Psychologist, The Times. She currently is working with children and teenagers, and she has a practice in Bristol, England, and she also is an expert in cognitive behavioral therapy, and she has a brand new podcast called Let's Talk CBT. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for being here today. Really excited to talk about your book and research. Pleasure. Really nice to be with you. So this book is a beast. It must have taken you so much time to write. I mean, the notes section is like staggering. What on earth inspired you to want to do that to yourself? <laughs> I actually really loved writing it. I uh, got the idea for writing it because I lectured for five years at the Anna Freud Centre in, in London. It's part of University College London and lectured on child development and also convened other lecturers to come and speak about it. So I was always... Um, I guess always relating some of the experiments, both to my clinical practice with teenagers and young people, but also to myself narcissistically. Uh, so thinking about kind of how our childhoods shape us later on and uh, also how it's not quite set in stone, I think. So I really enjoyed drawing out some of the really juicy experiments that I thought were the things that everyone should know about that we don't all get taught about at school, sadly. It's funny that you mentioned that because having studied a lot of developmental psychology, I found like an interesting mix of stuff that I had heard about before, but that you had updated with like all the newest research on it and kind of put it into a new context that I hadn't seen before. So really cool. It gives you like this incredible kind of overview of the lifespan. And the short answer is it's complicated. <laughs> How our childhood makes us who we are. But I wanted to focus specifically on, on the adolescent years. So you have a chapter on teenagers, and there's also some goodies sprinkled throughout the book about teenagers, the teenage brain, teenagers, and their theory of mind, all of that good stuff. So let's dive in. One thing that I'm really big on is how parents can kind of teach teenagers social skills or help teenagers to build skills that will help them to build a peer group that will be more supportive and not be pulling them in kind of negative directions and stuff like that. And you had a section in here called the skills of friendship. And a part of it is about kind of this idea that we tend to like people who are funny. So there's this impulse that if we want people to like us, that we try to be funny and we try to make them laugh, but that actually maybe that's not the best approach. 
Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Is that the interview with Christia Spears-Brown that uh, you're looking at there? Kennedy Moore. Oh, great. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Yeah, so, she talks really nicely about how it's sort of easy sometimes for children to want to fit in and kind of follow the lead of their peers. So exactly like you say, kind of trying to be funny, trying to make a joke, but sometimes that can go a little bit wrong. And as grown-ups, you know, we know sometimes a joke can fall flat as well and you can accidentally end up being a bit offensive. So instead, she talks in that interview about really trying to be kind because you can't really make a mistake with kindness. You can't really get kindness wrong, which I think is really valuable advice for, you know, for the whole of our lives, actually. So like in reading this, it makes me think like, so how would you introduce this idea to a teenager? Because, you know, the key to giving advice to teenagers is that they don't like to receive advice. It's a tricky one. I know as a teenager, if my mom would have been telling me advice on how to make friends, I probably would like reject that. So I always try to think of ways that things could be framed in a non-reactance inducing manner. I wonder how we could kind of like get this value of kindness or teach that lesson to a teenager without Mm -hmm. maybe like saying it directly. I think often it's really helpful when teenagers have already brought up a tricky subject and then you kind of got it up your sleeve really to kind of come in with. Mm. And I think, I think often when you're driving along in the car or kind of doing something else, it's quite a good time to be offering a, a small bite-sized piece of advice uh, because that's a time when you're not kind of looking directly at each other but you've got something else to focus on and uh, somehow the pressure's kind of taken off in those kind of situations I think but I think as well if you can relate it to the here and now for teenagers and to their peer group you know how they have felt when a friend has made a joke which had perhaps has missed the mark a little bit Uh, often that can feel really horrible when that happens to us so trying to frame it in those terms so to kind of encourage encourage the young person to think from that point of view really about you know you can't really get it so wrong if you're just really looking out for someone and trying to be kind it's hard not to like someone who's just trying to be nice to you right yeah 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 exactly I like this idea of always trying to have things up your sleeve. So where do you find things like that? And how detailed would you plan them out? Right? Because you want to kind of be spontaneous. You don't want to have like a memorized. Because I feel like as parents, that's kind of how a lot of times what we do, we have something that's so important that we want to communicate. Like, you know, oh, hey, I need to teach my teenager about how to make friends by, you know, being nice to people. And so planning, like, how am I going to say this? But so there's there's a fine line to walk between like thinking about it or planning a little bit that this is like a topic that you want to talk about or a lesson that you want to teach, but then not necessarily planning it to the extent of, okay, today I'm going to tell her this thing and use these words. Okay, so those things up your sleeve what level of detail do you think you would use for those Mm, I mean I guess it varies parents parent sort of how much people like to kind of really plan stuff um as a professional as well actually if you go into a session with a young person and you've really got a really strong idea in your mind of the agenda that you want to talk about in that session the risk then is that you don't listen uh, well enough to what actually they are bringing which mm. is the most important thing actually so it's so hard isn't it for parents uh, you know, they they want to impart all this kind of life advice and make sure that their young person has, has, you know, really got the hang of some crucial stuff. But actually, 
there is a lot to be said for just listening really, really carefully, I think, and being able to really sit alongside whatever the dilemma is that the young person is experiencing, because we can often overlay things that we're told with our own experiences anyway. And so it's quite easy to get the wrong end of the stick, particularly if you're coming in with a kind of plan of, I must tell you this about this experience. I must make sure you avoid this mistake that I made. And sometimes that can just be quite overwhelming, actually. But for some reason, it seems so like important to us or life or death as parents that we need to tell them this thing. And it's funny that you mentioned that about you're saving them from something that happened to me. Because there's this idea that you talk about in your book that I thought was really cool about reminiscing. I think you call it the reminiscence bump. This idea that adolescence is kind of this time that we do remember so many more things that happened to us. And you talk about how even, you know, like when you ask people to remember things from their life, they tend to remember things from adolescence. So can you walk me through that a little bit? Why is that? And how does that work? Mm, It's kind of weird, actually. Yeah. So if you ask older people if they can name their favourite biscuit or if they can name their favourite tune from their whole of their lives, often people pick stuff from the teenage years. And they're not entirely sure why. But some researchers think that it's because this is a time when memory is laid down with more importance and it's when our identity is formed. And this kind of chimes into this sort of fairly old theory really about how our identity is formed in adolescence which I think we have to hold quite lightly because I think there's other research that suggests that in fact our identities carry on forming much much later and are much more flexible than than people thought initially but perhaps that can also be quite helpful for for parents to know and to remember that some of the older ideas about identity being you know, formed in adolescence, and then that's it, have actually, they've not totally stood the the test of time, really. So, you know, it's all right to make mistakes, actually, in adolescence. And in fact, it's crucial. It's how we learn. I read something interesting in a book called Moonwalking with Einstein, which is about memory. And uh, one of the characters talks about this interesting idea that our perception of the passing of time is related to how many memories there are during that time. So if he could cram each year with a bunch more, you know, really strong memories, then it would make his life seem a lot longer when he looked back on it Mm -hmm. later on, which I thought was such a cool idea. And uh, when I read your book, it made me think about that. And it made me think about how, well, maybe the reason that, you know, when you ask people to answer questions about what's your favorite this and what's your favorite that, they choose these ones from the teenage years because they have a lot more memories or because the ones that they do have are so much more vivid. Mm. It's often the first time we experience lots of things, actually, isn't it? So I guess those initial memories can be, you know, really, really intense. They haven't habituated to it yet, you know, or yeah, yeah, right? Uh, They're like really strong or something. Mm. So you have a section in here called Underlying Values and Compassion. And it's pretty short, page-long section. You talk about basically the importance of getting in touch with the underlying values underlying our general direction of travel in life, focusing on what you're prioritizing as a family and trying to get in touch with the bigger values that inform our thinking is really important. Uh, It's a short section, but I wonder if you could talk about what made you write that and why you think that's so important. Yeah, sure. And so that's in um, that's the end of the chapter all about behavioural principles, a chapter that I call how to train a person, which is about kind of how to 
um, how to kind of help shape a young person's behaviour, I guess, in a way that you think is, is sort of pro-social or kind of helpful for the young person. So rewarding them for doing stuff that you, that you want to see more of and rewarding them less for stuff that you don't want to see. But I, I wanted to put the values bit in because I think that can sometimes really get lost if we're only looking at behavioural approaches to managing how we want somebody to be growing. And actually, the values that underpin how we want to live our lives and how we want to bring up the young people in our lives, I think are really, really crucial. And I think we don't always have enough time and space to really consider the values that we want to live our lives by. And those sorts of conversations, I think, can be really productive, actually, to have as parents, as professionals, uh, with young people, to try and get in touch with, well, you know, what is it that we want to be aiming for? What do we want to be doing? Not in a goals kind of achievement sense, but more in a what am I standing for? Yeah, what's important. Mm. So so that's another thing to have up your sleeves and be ready to talk about as a parent, right? So what would be like maybe a time when you could try to sneak that kind of thing in there or something? <laughs> to sneak it in. Um, I suppose conversations about values I think they can happen at all sorts of points but I think they often come up when we're making decisions about things because Mm. I think decision points can sometimes really reveal our values kind of almost put them in relief and young people today have to make an awful lot of decisions actually at very very early ages so when you think about, you know, decisions about what subjects to study at school, what exams uh, to take, what classes to take, which friends to hang out with, uh, yeah. whether to go to a party or not, what to do at that party. If you can get into some conversations that are a bit more about values in a truly curious way, so not kind of imposing your values on your young person, but saying, mm. well, you know, how, how do you want to handle this? What's important to you about it? How would you like to be? I think that can be a really helpful helpful scaffold to give the young person to start to think about how they want to be, who they want to be. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think you're right because I even deal with this like we're uh, just working on a paper right now and, you know, you get all this data and you have to try and figure out what model to use and how to present it. So we just were kind of like meeting about this paper we're working with and trying to figure out which of these things do we include. And it was like we had to, you know, come back to like, okay, well, what's the big idea? What do we want to say with this, you know? And just like you were saying, like we were trying to make a decision and in order to like make the decision, we had to kind of like open the lens a little bit to what is our value here. So like, ah, I wonder if, yeah, looking for times when your teenager is making a decision or is in the midst of a decision and then trying to tie those options down to, well, every decision says something about you. What what would that say? Yeah, that's really nice. The, the expression you use there, widening the lens. I guess mm. it's like taking a step back, isn't it? And sometimes we can all benefit from taking a bit of a step back and thinking, okay, you know, which direction do I want to go in now and, and why? And I suppose as well, particularly with decisions, also there's something for parents maybe about being able to take that longer view as well and reminding reminding young people that actually, even though a decision might feel like the most important decision at that moment there will be other opportunities to come back onto that path perhaps or to make a different decision and nothing is set in stone completely 
So there's a lot of talk these days about grit and resilience and perseverance and how our kids don't have enough of it. And so you have a section on this that's really interesting in the book. Um, who's this person? McCrory that you're interviewing. Eamon McCrory, yeah. Yes. And you're talking about this idea that people tend to locate resilience in the child rather than maybe focusing more on the community or the network that the child finds himself in. Can you explain what you mean by that and how that might work in adolescence? Mm. I mean, I actually think this is a really exciting idea because it opens up opportunities for anybody who is involved in young people's lives. Yeah, because your environment, I can change that. Like, I can't exactly. change what's inside you, but I yeah. can't, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if there's resilience that's located out here, we got to figure that out. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's, that's a real opportunity for us to try and do something. So both Eamon McCrory and also Peter Fonagy, in the interviews I did for the book, they both talk about this idea that the community actually is implicated in resilience. So mm. there's a lot of talk about how resilient somebody is to adverse experiences that happen to them but actually if you think about it from a more systemic point of view from a more community point of view what is it that the community can do to connect with that person and to help and a lot of the research the longitudinal studies that are really fab there's a brilliant one done in the islands of Hawaii which followed a cohort for a really really long time and they found that even just having one relationship that was important to a child mm. even if they'd experienced incredible adversity they could come through that and that you can think about maybe that's to do with factors within the child but that's also a lot to do with the community that the child is living in yeah. and it makes me think well that's a huge opportunity for anybody who has a child in their life to know that they can really make a huge difference actually all it takes is one so you talk about a study conducted in 2010 by researchers in germany they followed nearly 100 adolescents, 52 girls, 41 boys over 10 years, starting at age 15 through age 25. And they found that their sense of self, how strong of an identity they had at age 15, predicted the strength of their relationships at age 25. Oh, is that the one about romantic relationships? That's yes. Like yes. Yes. So people Very who had a, a less strong sense of their own identity as teenagers had more superficial and less deep romantic relationships 10 years later. What the heck is going on? And can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, it's quite complex because I suppose the bit that we don't know there, so yeah, absolutely, as you say, sense of self as a teenager linked to quality of romantic relationships later on. What we don't know there as well is the sort of family setup of those of those adolescents so the kind of influences from their earlier childhoods which would be really interesting to know and may well have kind of influenced their sense of self as well as influencing their romantic relationships Mm. but I suppose it's really again really important to notice just how important our sense of self in a relationship is because it's really hard to relate to another person in a way in which you're still feeling on an even keel yourself if you Mm -hmm. don't have a sense of what your own personal 
boundaries are and what you want out of a relationship, what you want to say yes to or no to and and how to do that. So anything that we do that is fostering a young person's sense of their own self is in a way helping them with their relationships later on is what that study sort of suggests to me. We're here with Dr. Lucy Maddox talking about her new book, Blueprint, How Our Childhood Makes Us Who We Are. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. It's such a challenge, isn't it? And I think as well, because you've got that extra layer as well of teenagers individuating, you know, becoming more independent and yeah. sort of half wanting your approval and half not actually. So it's, it's a really difficult place to be, isn't it? You're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Eating chocolate in the long term, you know, bad for us if we have too much of it. Spending too much money, you know, there's uh, having a, an extra glass of wine. There's all sorts of things that all of us do that might not be that helpful in the longer term. So remembering that, I think, when we're giving advice or kind of helping teenagers talk through what's going on for them. Yeah, it's actually, it's a really nice study, this. So um, they have this kind of modular shelving unit, a bit like the ones you get in Ikea, but it's got a back on it sort of certain segments of the unit are kind of covered up so they can't see sure. everything and the the teenagers have got to tell the director where to put these objects that are in the shelf so yeah this particular study did show that they have a more egocentric bias so they're more they're more likely to see things from their own point of view and it's quite a complex task actually so it's a bit more complex than the traditional three mountains task that gets done with with younger children but it kind of makes sense if you think that some theory of mind capacities are still developing in adolescence you know teenagers often get accused of being really self-centered um Mm, which sometimes makes me laugh because i think you know actually everybody is a bit self-centered so (laughs) it's it's not the worst thing in the world but you know they've got a lot to think about and maybe also some of their theory of mind capacities are still developing if if someone is kind of struggling to move a heavy object quite young children toddlers actually go to help so that suggests they do have theory of mind capacity actually Uh, right oh i see what you're trying to do there you're trying to move that i'm gonna give you a hand You know, there's so much worry around about the digital landscape that teenagers are having to negotiate now. And, you know, some of that is really well founded. But I think we've also got to be really careful not to confuse, you know, the medium itself with how people are using it. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.